millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you're joining us for a new episode and indeed a new series of our podcast, Talking France. Welcome back to all our regular listeners around France and indeed around the world. We know many of you tune in from far off lands. And a big welcome to any new listeners to Talking France. Our job is to bring you up to date with all the big talking points and cultural questions from France each week. And it's thanks to members of the local we're able to do so. This week, we'll find out why frustrated budget airlines like Ryanair are trying to force a change to limit French air traffic control strikes, and what you should know if you want to book a tour around one of the country's famous vineyards. We'll also learn whether there's any truth to the cliché that French workers are lazy, unproductive strikers who are always on holiday. We'll tell you the incredible story of a famous French resistance leader and how he and his fellow fighters are viewed both in France and abroad. And we'll explain why it's not just the French flag you'll see flying in the streets around France. I'm Ben McParlton, your host, and I'll be joined by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and French politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, great to have you back with us. Before we get stuck into our talking points, Emma, I believe there's something that you particularly want to talk about this week. Something on Saturday night, what is it? It's not just me. Everyone in Europe is talking about this. The best event of the year. It is, of course, Eurovision. Right. This is uh, some kind of song contest, I believe. Uh, is it a big deal in France, Emma? Um, it's true. I must confess, Eurovision is fairly low-key event in France. Our colleagues over in Sweden, uh, their most watched TV programme every year is the Eurovision qualifier, like the Sweden and the Nordics in particular go mental for it. It's a little bit more low-key in, uh, in France. Um, Do we know why? It's maybe because France hasn't been very good at the contest in recent years. Um, they haven't actually won since 1977. But also, bitterly for them, they used to be Eurovision high flyers. In the first 10 years of the contest, France won it three times. They were the top. I think maybe an explanation for this is language, and particularly France's famed protectiveness towards the French language. So when the Eurovision Song Contest first began in 1956, it was the rule that all entries must be sung in one of the official languages of that country, which is pretty good news for French because it's the official language of several European countries. But this rule was kind of later on scrapped and so now uh, countries can sing in any language that they want and increasingly over the years that has kind of meant English. And over the last 20 years, 17 of the winning songs have actually been in English. Surely none of them have been the French entry though. <laughs> no, the, the French as we know are quite protective of the French language. Its entries have mostly been in French, not entirely. Two years, including last year, they sent songs sung in Breton, one of France's native languages. And there have also been like some songs that have just had like the odd line or a chorus or something in English. But every time that happened, that sparked a furious reaction in France. And there have been questions asked in the parliament about how this could possibly have happened. So it's not uncontroversial. This year, the entry is in French, entirely in French. It's called Evidemment. It's actually in the bookie's top five favourites. And the two previous years, the winners were not sung in English. Ukraine won last year with a sort of souped up Ukrainian folk song. And the Italian rock group Morniskin won in 2021. So maybe, maybe this will be France's year. Although okay. 
maybe, also maybe not. My personal tip is that Sweden will win, but we'll see. But one thing that France will get consolation from is that France does remain one of the two official languages that the contest is presented in, along with English. So when scores are read out, you know, acts can celebrate, they get 12 points, which is the maximum 12 point, or 0 points, the 0 points. And it's being held in the UK this year, which means the Brits have to speak French. Great. So fans of Eurovision can tune in on Saturday night, is it? It is Saturday uh, night, yeah. Of else? course you know this. Don't pretend that you don't know this and you won't be glued to your right, screen like no. everyone else. Everybody else, well, can do something else on Saturday night. Thanks, <laughs> Emma. Uh, appreciated that. Okay, let's move on to some meatier subjects, please, Emma. <laughs> We're talking in France this week about EU flags, which people who live here and people who visit here will no doubt have seen flying in the streets above certain buildings. Emma, why are we talking about EU flags this week in particular? Uh, well, it's because the French Parliament has been examining a proposal to make it compulsory to fly the EU flag, along with the French flag, obviously, on mairies, on town halls. It's a proposal that's been made by an MP in Macron's ruling party. They've been talking about it in the Parliament this week. It's proved quite divisive, but interestingly, it's not because anybody seems to particularly have a problem with the idea of flying the EU flag. Like you just said, it's already very widely displayed around mm. France. Most of the opposition MPs who are objecting to it are just saying that it's a waste of parliamentary time, it's not necessary to have a rule on this, or just that the decision should be left to local leaders. It's not that they have a particular issue with the EU flag itself. Now, when you mentioned this subject, one of the things that kind of caught me by surprise was that I thought they were, it was already compulsory for them to be flown above town halls in France. Yeah, I must say I, I did too before this, because you do see them absolutely everywhere. In fact, it's only schools that have to display both the French flag and the EU flag. That's specified in the Code de l'Education. In mairies and other sort of local administrative buildings, it's down to local officials. In practice, though, most mairies do fly both the French flag and the EU flag, and it's the same on, like, government ministries, government buildings. And in the background, when politicians are making a speech, if you watch the, the president or one of his ministers making some kind of speech or announcement, the standard practice is that they will have a French flag and an EU flag next to each other, kind of in the background mm. as they talk. Mairies usually have a French flag and an EU flag on sort of normal days, around and ahead of public holidays, especially July 14th, the French National Day, or VE Day on November 11th, they'll often add sort of extra French flags to, I don't know, French it up a little bit. And mairies also have the option of displaying extra flags on special occasions. So, for example, a lot of mairies will fly the LGBTQ rainbow flag during Pride Month. Mm. And right now we're seeing quite a few mairies that are also flying the Ukrainian flag as a, an act of solidarity. But it's the decision of the local mayor. Sure. Now, look, this EU flag kind of discussion seems like classic culture war territory, but it's really the case in France, is it? Not really, no. There was a bit of a drama last year at the Arc de Triomphe, which is the home of the, the French unknown soldier and a memorial to the country's war dead. It usually has a French flag flying. Huge French flag underneath yeah, the mass arch. Yeah. Massive one under, rim, goes under the arch. In January 2022, uh, the government decided to temporarily replace it with an EU flag, which was to mark the time when France assumed the presidency of the European Council. I remember, yeah. Yeah, and that did kind of become a bit of a culture war. It was seized on by the right and the far right, who sort of accused the government of betraying national pride. The government insisted that they'd only intended to do this for a couple of days anyway, but the flag was replaced by the French flag. But, I don't know, it was just a couple of months before the presidential election, which is a time when things tend to get a bit, you know, blown out of yeah, proportion and all hysterical. 
miracle. So uh, storm in a test of tea. Storm in a test of tea, as the French don't say. Yes, exactly. Okay, and just on the vote itself, uh, we haven't got a result as we're recording the podcast, but this will be kind of going through Parliament in the weeks to come. Uh, yeah, the, the schedule is uh, they'll be they should be deciding it this week, but then even if it is approved, it'll have to go to the Senate. Yeah. So it's kind of still okay. ongoing. One to watch, but you'll no doubt see EU flags flying above Mary and indeed schools, as Emma pointed out. Anyway, I think now it's a good time to bring in our French politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. I asked John, what about the role of the EU in France and whether it's kind of accepted here now? Yeah, it's true. I mean, my little village here in Normandy has a European flag flying all the time, you know, as, as well as the French flag. Whenever they have the flags flying, they have the, both those flags flying. And that's true most places around here. I wasn't aware until this, I think it's a private member's bill, isn't it, came up that it wasn't sort of normal, you know, that there is no compulsion at the moment. I don't think making it compulsory makes much sense, you know, let people make their own decision. There are quite a lot of town halls around here that fly Ukrainian flags as well. So uh, Europe in France, you know, as we've often said before, the country is kind of split three ways at the moment. You have a sort of hard left and a, and a pretty nationalist far right, and then a kind of centre block. And it's more or less even with groups of people. And I would say that outside the centre Macronish block, which is very pro-European, there isn't much pro-European feeling in the hard left, not at all. And there's certainly none on the hard and far right. So how European is France? Not that very, really. And we could, you know, you saw that in 2005, I think, when there was the referendum on a new constitution, which was narrowly defeated. And at the time it was defeated because people, not because they looked at the new constitution, but many of them looked at the Treaty of Rome that they'd been part of for so long and didn't like some of what was in that. So there is kind of more sort of latent Euroscepticism in France than is sometimes admitted. Whether the country would ever do a Brexit is unlikely. I think we've proved that's not a good idea. It would be even more disastrous for France. I don't think there is very, very strong, broad pro-European feeling in France, no. Now, on Monday, May the 8th, the anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe, which is a public holiday in France, President Emmanuel Macron went to Lyon, where he visited a jail cell whose previous inmate was Jean Moulin. Emma, who was Jean Moulin? Tell us more about him. He was a resistance leader during the Second World War. His name and his image are pretty well known in France, but I don't think he gets much recognition outside of France, which is a shame because his story mm. is extraordinary. So he was born in Béziers, down in the southwest, and pre-war his career was mostly in politics. So he was an air minister for a brief period during the left-wing Popular Front government in 1936, but mostly he was involved in local politics at the prefecture level. And when the Second World War broke out, he was the prefet in Chartres, which is the historic cathedral city to the southwest of Paris. So when the Nazis occupied France in May 1940, Moulin, like most local officials in France, was kind of occupied with trying to maintain order in his district and also dealing with this enormous flood of refugees who were leaving Paris. But shortly after the invasion, members of the occupied army tried to get Moulin, as the prefect for the area, to sign a statement saying that a group of Senegalese soldiers, who were part of the French army, had committed war crimes in the area. Knowing this was not true, Moulin refused. He was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was beaten... While in custody, he tried to take his own life. He cut his throat with a piece of glass, leaving him with a, a lifelong scar. The attempt failed and the Germans released him, but the Vichy government promptly sacked him from his job. Uh, Emma, he uh, went to London to meet, obviously, Charles de Gaulle, who basically sent him back to France with a, an important mission. Yeah, exactly. Uh, de Gaulle entrusted him with the, the difficult and extremely dangerous job of going back to France and coordinating resistance networks in the country. So he was parachuted back into France in January 1942, 
And he spent the next 18 months essentially creating what would become the resistance. Uh, he was recruiting people into the cause, establishing networks for spying, sabotage, armed conduct. He was distributing weapons that were supplied from London. But above all, he was kind of trying to unite these disparate and often warring resistance factions in France into one united group. The plan was to have in place armed networks of fighters so that when the Allied invasion of France began... French partisans would also engage in armed combat with the German army, which is kind of, you know, dividing and occupying their troops and weakening their response to the invasion. And that is largely what happened in 1944. Moulin, he's kind of often described as the leader of the French resistance. It's not really that simple because there were lots of different groups who were resisting the Nazi occupiers and there was never really one united group just called the resistance. But he was certainly a leader and he was an extremely influential one. And I think it's doubtful that the resistance would have been as strong as it was by 1944 without his sort of organisational and recruitment skills on the ground. And Jean Moulin, like many resistance fighters in France, never got to see the liberation of the country. Right, yeah. He uh, he died in July 1943. And even now, the circumstances around his death are still sort of shrouded in mystery, really. We know that he was arrested by the Gestapo on June 21st, 1943, while meeting other resistance leaders in Lyon. It seems that he was betrayed but still nobody knows by whom he was held by the gestapo in leon he was tortured for around two weeks but gave up no information he was loaded onto a train to germany but he was recorded as dead on arrival on july 8th 1943 he was 44 years old after the war in 1964 he was inducted into the pantheon in paris which is like france's highest posthumous honor along with several other resistance leaders and i think it's this point that his name and particularly his image became well known in france even if you've not heard his name you might well have recognized him because it's his photo that's kind of often used to illustrate stories of the resistance. This is a, a picture that was supplied by his sister in 1964 when he was um, being inducted into the Pantheon. It's taken before the war. It's showing him in a rather dashing sort of a scarf and a, a trilby hat at an angle. He's a handsome guy and there's just something about the, you know, the hat shading his face that seems to illustrate secretive resistance activity. Although the picture was actually taken before the war even started. But sometimes that's not so important when you're establishing a legend. Mm, interesting. Now I think it's a good time to bring in our politics expert John Litchfield, who knows a thing or two about French history. I asked John whether the French resistance and their leaders get enough respect abroad and indeed at home. Uh, well, I've been here 25 years now. One of the first stories I remember doing is going down into the Auvergne, which is a big area for the resistance to talk to a very old, by that time, resistance leader because they were putting up a monument, which should, in a sculpture which had been done by a British artist. And I asked him about what it had been like, and he said, you know, our real problem was that we knew who we were, and we knew who the Vichy people were, the people who were sort of pro-Nazi or pro-Vichy, but 95% of French people, we had no idea which side they were on, and uh, you could never be sure. That was our real problem. And I think, you know, the numbers in the resistance are uh, open to dispute, and no one had a sort of membership card. In 1940, 1941, very, very few at all. Communists uh, started to create a resistance after the German invasion of Russia in the summer of 41. What really built up the resistance was when the Germans drafted a lot of young French men to go and work in Germany in 1942, and a lot of them just fled, basically, into the countryside, into the forests, and became a kind of resistance by default, you know, and that built up the numbers of the resistance. So by the end of the war, there were something like 100,000 people out of the 40 million in France who were involved in the resistance, about 3%. That's not, you know, a shame in the sense that probably wouldn't have been very different in any other country, but... I think the idea that France as a whole resisted is not true. The French collaborated as a whole is not true. I think 
the country went into a kind of uh, sullen hibernation in a way, just waiting for the, for the war to end. And there was a lot of passive resistance to the Germans, but active resistance towards the end, yes, but throughout. And some of the activities were very important. I mean, there's a man not very well known that I wrote about called Michel Allah, who discovered the V1 launching sites in Normandy and the fact that he managed to get the plans out to Britain really stopped the V1 attacks on London being more of a success than they were. So there were big successes for the French resistance. Uh, you know, one has to be careful not to dismiss it, but I think careful not to build it up too much as well. Just finally, what about in France? You know, is it important that politicians kind of are seen to be, you know, respecting these figures of the resistance like Macron did at the May the 8th celebrations? And are these figures really well remembered in France or are they kind of forgotten about heroes? No, they're remembered. They're taught, kids are taught about them at school. I think um, the first 20, 30 years after the war, there was a sort of a kind of uh, official myth of French uh, involvement during the war, which was promoted by de Gaulle and, and others. And more recently, there's been a willingness to face up to what happened to the Jews, willingness to face up to collaboration, willingness to face up to the Vichy. So it's important not to forget the other side as well, that there was a resistance, which was, as I say, quite successful, but very, very divided amongst itself, which is the story of Jean Moulin. You know, he was sent in by de Gaulle to try and organize the whole of the resistance because there were several different movements which competed with one another. And it's believed, I don't think it's ever been proved, that he was betrayed by one of the other resistance movements. So the story, as I say, is very complicated, very French, very human, I suppose. Thank you, John. Uh, Emma, finally, just to give an idea how important Jean Moulin is in France, there are 2,215 streets named after him around the country. That actually puts him fifth place overall in terms of the number of streets named after a kind of famous French figure. Behind, who's top? Charles de Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle, yeah. Nearly 4,000 streets named after him. After Charles de Gaulle is Louis Pasteur. I think he invented milk, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. He's, a, I think, a microbiologist who... Uh, that's where we get the word pasteurisation from, isn't it? Yes, medical. Experience. And then after Louis Pasteur is Victor Hugo, the guy who wrote the West End musical. Yes, that's it. Indeed, so, yeah, famous author. And, of course, Jean Jaurès, I know, who's a French socialist politician, but he's in fifth place. Um, if we want to learn more about Jean Moulin and the French Resistance, anywhere people can go, Emma, apart from online? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're in Paris, I highly recommend the Musée de Libération. It tells the stories of the resistance leaders, including Jean Moulin, and the liberation of Paris, and also the experience of civilians in Paris during the occupation. It's a relatively new museum, and it's actually set up above the underground bunker where the resistance leaders directed the liberation of Paris, and you can go and sort of look around that. So that's great. One that I haven't been to, but is now very much on my list, uh, is the place that Macron went to in Lyon. This is Montluc prison. This is the prison where Jean Moulin was held and tortured. After the war, it continued to operate as a prison for quite a long time, but it was closed in 2007 and it's now a historic monument and there are guided tours on offer and it tells the story of uh, resistance activity in the air. Excellent. couple of great suggestions there for listeners who want to know more about the French resistance. Thank you, Emma. Now, a year rarely goes by in France without air traffic controllers going on strike and causing travel misery for millions of passengers across Europe. And this year, the pension strikes have once again led to thousands of flight cancellations and delays. Budget airlines like Ryanair, who've long had a grudge to bear against French air traffic controllers, have had enough of the impact on their business. 
Jen, the focus of their complaint is not so much on flights grounded at French airports, but the skies above France. Is that right? Yeah. So about half of all the planes in France's skies on any given day, so that's an average of 3,700, are just passing through France's airspace. Now, this might not seem like news. France is a pretty big country in Western Europe, so it's natural that there are lots of planes flying overhead. But as we know, there are a lot of strikes in France. And when those strikes happen, it's not just the planes landing and departing from France that are affected. It's also the ones that are flying through France's skies, known as overflights. And that's because French air traffic controllers are in charge of them as, you know, the flights are passing over France. So budget airline Ryanair has complained to the European Union, again, basically claiming that France cancels more overflights during strikes in order to keep more of their domestic flights operating. And the company said that in 2023, they had to cancel 3,350 flights due to strikes, and that most of them were just flights that were passing through French airspace. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'll read out what Ryanair CEO Michael O'Leary had to say. He's uh, notoriously outspoken. He said France is using minimum service legislation to protect its local French flights. But all the cancellations are then being disproportionately passed on to English flights, Irish flights, Italian flights, Spanish flights, German flights. This is unfair, said O'Leary. When there are air traffic control strikes in Italy, they protect overflights. In Greece, they protect overflights. France must be required by the EU Commission to protect overflights, he says. He basically says it's basically being cancelled because a bunch of French air traffic controller units want to go on strike. He's not happy, Jen. Yeah, and he has some specific demands. So Ryanair wants the European Commission to update the minimum service provisions so that overflights are also protected by it, as you mentioned. And the airline has also called for European air traffic controllers to be able to operate in French airspace during strikes. Honestly, if either of these things are accepted by the commission, it would still take a really long time to put any new procedures into place. And on top of that, airlines have been complaining to the EU about how French strikes have impacted their flights for years and really nothing has changed. Yes, as I said, they've long been a source of anger and frustration for airlines. And it's not just Ryanair complaining, we should say. EasyJet CEO Johan Lundgren told AFP recently that France needed to sort out its strikers or risk losing visitors. He said the more reputation an industry or country gets for strikes and not being reliable, that will have a dampening effect on demand. People will just go somewhere else, he said. Why should I go to France if I think I can be exposed to a strike? We probably should stress there that French visitor numbers are quite high. It's the most visited country in the world, is it not, Emma? It is, yes. It has been for for years. And obviously, France, I think it's fair to say, is pretty well known for striking. So if you look at the the data of um, French visitors, it doesn't really seem like strikes do affect it. When you look at years when we've had really big strikes or really big actions like the yellow vests or whatever, people kept coming. I think for most tourists, they kind of accept that a strike might happen and just balance that out with all the good stuff that France has to offer. Indeed. But let's get back to this problem of overflights that Ryanair and EasyJet have been complaining about. Jen, how many flights passing through French airspace are actually impacted by these strikes. Have we got any figures? Well, so it's hard to say, but it does not seem like overflights are that much more affected than those that are just departing and arriving in France. So the European air traffic control body, Eurocontrol, recently published some data, and they looked at the impact French strikes had on the aviation industry over the past month, which, as a reminder, was jam-packed with protests against President Macron's pension reform. So they were looking at the dates from March 1st to April 9th, 
and they found that more than 10 million passengers were hit with either delays or cancellations as a result of strikes, which means that on average, 64,000 passengers per day were impacted. But when you look a little bit more closely at this data, uh, you find that 14% of flights taking off and landing in France were impacted by strikes in some way, and then about 16% of flights just flying through French airspace were affected. So there's not that huge of a difference between the two. And unsurprisingly, Eurocontrol found that France was the country most impacted by industrial action, with daily cancellations up 158% on average during that strike period. Okay, so the stats suggest the difference between the two isn't that large, and it doesn't really show that there's a disproportionate impact on overflights when compared to domestic ones. We should perhaps hear from maybe a French air traffic controller themselves. And I texted somebody I know who works in air traffic control. I'll read out what he's had to say, guys, see what you make of this. He said, look, we regret the disruption that this causes for travellers. You know, we don't strike just for pleasure. Uh, and we have to, we should remind, you know, listeners or people affected that when we strike, we're not paid. And we always put the prime cause first when it comes to striking action. In this case, it was pension reform. And then he suggests, look, this is the way it's done in France. This is the dialogue à la Française. If you don't go on strike and you don't kind of flex your muscles as a, a striker or a unionist, then nobody listens to you and they crush you. And he finished off with, look, there's billionaires in France and the state are asking poor workers to make an effort to make up the deficit. And that makes gives me the feeling that I should go on strike to protest against that. So, look, that's the defence of air traffic controllers. And Emma, any sympathy with that, Jen? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, in a democratic country, workers have the right to strike. Um, in France, the right to strike is even in the Constitution. And I think protecting that democratic right is important, even if it does inconvenience some budget airlines. Yes, they, uh, as he stressed, they don't do it just to make our lives a misery when we're planning a trip to France or indeed around Europe. Thank you, guys. Emma. I've got a fairly straightforward question for you now that I've seen banded around on social media in recent weeks and indeed kind of regularly in France. Are French workers lazy? I am always surprised by how often this trope comes up. You know, people often comment on like our stories on social media or even email us sometimes just to like rant about how French workers are lazy. So I decided to take a look at some of the actual stats to, to see if this is true. The best data I found is from the OECD and it compares the sort of average number of hours worked per year for everyone within the workforce for different countries. And on this metric, France is pretty much bang average for Europe. Workers work on average 1,490 hours per year. So French workers, they work roughly the same number of hours as those in the UK, slightly fewer than the EU average, but more than workers in Denmark, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Iceland, Austria, Sweden and Germany, which I thought was interesting because, you know, Germans do tend to have this rep international reputation as hard workers, but they actually work less than French workers. If you're sort of broadening out in world terms, workers in Europe tend to work fewer hours than outside, particularly those in Japan, for example, the US. USA, Russia, Korea, and the world's hardest workers, according to the OECD, are Mexicans who work an insane number of hours per year. This one, it measures hours worked, and obviously being physically present at work isn't always the same as actually working. You know, you might be drinking coffee, gossiping with uh, with your friends, looking at gossip websites online. But if we look at productivity data, then France generally scores pretty well there as well. It's usually within the top 20 countries worldwide, depending on the metric that you're using. And of course, the French economy is the seventh biggest in the world. So that does suggest that some people here are doing some work. OK, I mean, I think you've kind of well and truly busted that myth, the cliche there. However, what is true, I think, is that they do have this reputation, right? We can't deny that. Where does it come from? Yeah, they, they really Unfair do. Unfair reputation, I should yeah. say, but where does it come from? Yeah, they really do. Um, 
I think it's a couple of things. I think it's firstly the size of the French workforce, which kind of skews some data. And it's secondly, the sort of well-known French workplace policies, such as the 35-hour week and the sort of holiday allowances and that kind of thing. So looking at the workforce first, because it's a bit more of a, a technical, statsy type explanation, but that OECD data I mentioned calculated work rate by just dividing the number of hours worked by the number of workers in the country. But some data comparisons divide the number of hours worked by the total population. And by that metric, France doesn't come out so well because it has quite a large part of the population who are not in work for various reasons. The biggest reason for this is pensioners, as we know, because of the recent many, many protests. The French retire early. And they also have a long life expectancy. Uh, life expectancy in France is 82 compared to 80 in the UK and 77 in the USA. So around a quarter of the total population of France are pensioners and therefore not in work. France also has relatively high rates of unemployment. Around 7% of the population are seeking work. And French kids are also quite likely to go to university, which means they start work later, mm. uh, especially as the sort of largely state-funded higher education means that fewer students work while they study. So we do have quite a lot of people in France who are not working. I mean, I think you've touched on a couple of points there that, that really do come up and contribute to this reputation is the 35-hour week, you know, the famous 35-hour week, and this idea of the long holidays in France. What's the truth or myth around that? Well, yeah, I mean, holiday allowance is pretty generous in France when you compare it to the USA, for example. But it is average within Europe. I think maybe there's much more of a culture here of everyone going on holiday in August and kind of like the cities closing down and lots of businesses not being open. So it maybe seems like people get more holiday than they do. But if you look at the, you know, the number of days holiday that people get per year we're pretty much European average. Likewise, we do get quite a lot of public holidays, 11 a year or 13 if you live in Alsace-Lorraine. But again, so do Italy and Spain, so we're not particularly unusual. The 35-hour week is real, but there are quite a lot of exceptions to that. So certain professions are exempt, including journalism, which I'm very upset yeah. about. Anyone who is a middle manager level or above is also exempt. And of course, it only refers to salaried employees, not people who are self-employed or freelance. Of the people who do benefit, and it's mostly public sector workers, People do tend to work longer than 35 hours during the week and then they save up the extra hours as time off in lieu, what they call RTT days, and sort of add it onto their annual holiday allowance. The average working week in France is 39.6 hours, which again is in line with the European average. So I'm not saying we get a bad deal in France, not at all, but we're not really a European exception. OK, what about France's millions of public sector workers? They've got the best deal going, haven't they? Yeah, they absolutely, absolutely have. And I think this is kind of partly where this image comes from, that a lot of the things that people think of as applying to all French workers, such as the 35-hour week, really only apply to public sector workers who are about 20% of the mm. workforce. But set against them, there are private sector employees, there are self-employed, there are small business owners, a lot of whom work really hard. So, for example, my local boulangerie is a family-owned one. There are four adults working in it. They open at seven in the morning and they've got their first batch of bread already baked and they close at 10pm. That's a long working day and that is not particularly unusual for small businesses, especially boulangeries. But yeah, you're right. The functionaires, some of them do have a pretty cushy working life. OK, thank you, Emma. I hope friends and family who are listening to this will now stop messaging me about how lazy and indeed I am. The French workers are over here. I think you've put that to bed now, Emma. Now, one of the things that people often recommend for you to do in France is, of course, a tour of vineyards. France is synonymous with wine. It's got vineyards in regions all around the country. But if you're going to book a tour, there's probably a couple of things you should think about before you do. Jen, fire away. First things first, you should ask yourself a couple of questions. 
what kind of experience am I looking for? What kind of wine do I want to drink? Where in France do I want to stay and visit? When do I want to go? And do I require any special amenities like a kids-friendly vineyard or one that offers transportation? So to help answer that first question about the type of vineyard, you can kind of narrow it down between a small home-style type of place and a larger, more organized one. If you go for the large vineyard, you're probably going to be able to have a more involved experience. So maybe an English-speaking guide, tours around the wine-growing areas, a tasting session. Some might even offer meals. For the big ones, you definitely are going to have to book in advance. Smaller vineyards, on the other hand, might be able to give you a bit of a more intimate experience. They might open a few bottles for you to taste, tell you a bit about their wine production process. And then sometimes these small vineyards actually will just stick up signs on the side of the road and say, degustation tasting um, and you can pop in for free. Now, if you do that, I recommend buying a bottle or two just, you know, to be polite. But basically, you should go into either of these vineyards with some essential wine and vineyard vocabulary as well. So, for example, a vignoble is the vineyard or the wine growing area and then the cave is a cellar, so that's usually where the tasting area is. Okay, now transport is pretty important, Jen. Obviously, these vineyards are out in the countryside. It's not like the one in Montmartre, you know, in the centre of Paris that you can walk up to. What is it about transport that people should think about ahead of time? Basically, the gist is that you should think about transport ahead of time. If you don't have a car or you don't want to drive, which is very understandable if your goal is to taste wine, then you should first think about whether or not the vineyard is walkable from the village that you're hoping to stay in or if they offer a transport service, which some of the larger ones do. If you want to drive, you should really be careful about how much wine you've consumed because French drinking and driving laws are quite strict. Indeed. Now, you mentioned also, Jen, going to a vineyard with kids. It doesn't sound like the natural thing to do with kids. However, it can be. I went to the, took the kids to the Calvados experience in pont levec Normandy. Really recommend it to listeners and to you guys. It was great, really interactive for the kids and they got absolutely wasted on apple juice. But is it possible to bring your kids along to vineyards? Yeah, it's definitely possible. There are a lot of vineyards that accept families or people with kids. Um, I think the polite thing to do is to just call ahead and ask that it's okay before assuming. Um, but you can pick vineyards just based on the fact that they might offer kid-friendly activities too. So like you said, Ben, some might have a special kids tasting, like vineyards might do a grape juice tasting. They might also have outdoor activities and games and stuff. I actually think a great place to take kids to if you want to taste wine is the Cité du Vin Museum in Bordeaux. It's super interactive, really fun for everyone. The kids get to smell the wine flavors and stuff like that. And then at the end, it includes a really nice rooftop tasting so the adults can have a nice time too. Fantastic advice, Jen. Just one question I always have uh, on wine tasting trips, not that I've ever done them. Are you men who really pour away the wine that they serve you and not just finish the glass? Emma, you sound like you know a bit about this. Um, yeah, normally you'll notice like when you do a, a tasting, there'll be a, a bucket in the middle of the table. That's not to spit in. Um, like some sort of professional tasters or sommeliers do spit out their wine, but that's not very common. But normally what happens is that you'll, um, you'll taste maybe six, eight different wines and they'll pour you a good sized glass full because it's all about letting the aroma of the wine circulate and you can have a good few sips and taste as they sort of talk you through what the wine is like but the thing is if you're having like six or eight full glasses of wine in the middle of a day you might end up slightly um, incapacitated at the end so what normally what people do is they'll have a couple of sips from the glass and then they'll just pour the rest into the bucket i never thought about pouring it away if i've paid 25 euros for my ticket i'm finishing every glass (laughs) 
surely. <laughs> I'm assuming you're not driving, but uh, no. uh, but actually my tip is that they usually start with the cheaper ones and then like have the the more expensive ones at the end. So like save yourself a little bit because if you hurl back all of the earlier ones, by the time you get to the really expensive you ones, it. you probably can't taste yeah, the difference taste anyway it. because you're just drunk. So. Fantastic. We clearly need to take this podcast on tour around France to visit some of these tasting. I think we should, yeah, yeah, because they're, they're a really fun day out and it's a nice way to meet people as well, especially in like the smaller vineyards where they're often like family run. Often they've been there like four or five generations and these people are like really, really passionate about like what they do, about the wine they produce, about the history, about the stewardship of the countryside. So it's a really nice way to like get to meet people and find out a bit more about France and Excellent. wine also. You're the designated driver, Jen. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I can take it. That's fine. OK, thank you, Emma. Thank you, Jen. And before we bring an end to this episode of Talking France, we should move on to some little uh, hacks, or in this case, vocab that we're going to give you. And we're sticking to the subject of wine, because there is so much French vocab linked to wine that we should learn. Can I start us off? Yes. This is the word that I learned, you know, really confused me at the beginning. It's just a, a slang word for wine, le pinard. Apparently, it comes from the First World War in the name of the wine ration that was given to soldiers, or at least that's one of the theories. It now kind of refers to kind of, you know, maybe a cheap full-bodied red, I guess you could call it plonk. We In English, we often refer to it as plonk. But if you hear people talking about pinard, they're basically talking about wine uh, or cheap wine. Anyway, Emma, anything from you? Uh, yeah, I put in one that you will hear all the time if you go on a vineyard tour, which is the terroir. The terroir, it it really just means like the earth or the soil, but in wine, I think it has a, a broader meaning and it's kind of like how the place it's grown impacts on the grapes. So it would be like the soil, the weather, the environment, everything that sort of produces the wine. And like wine growers will tell you that two identical wine types grown in different areas will have a different taste. And that's because of the, the terroir. And often they kind of mean it in a, a broader sense as well, that it's about the relationship between the, the grape and the land and the, the stewardship of the land of people created. So it's a thing that uh, wine growers get quite passionate about. They certainly do. Jen? Uh, uh, yeah, I've got a couple. So my first ones are about flavor. So I think you should know the difference between sucré and acidité, which might sound kind of uh, self-explanatory. Sucré is sugary, acidité is acidic. Um, but then there's also bitter, which is la mer, and salé, which is salty. And if you want to wish someone a very nice wine tasting, you can say bonne dégustation. And my favorite one, and this is my final one, is the word bouchonné. So if you go to a restaurant and you have to taste the wine at the restaurant, the reason that they're asking you to do that is to tell whether or not the cork is tainted or bouchonné. Now, I'm usually not the person that gets to have the honor of this experience, and I'm thankful for it because I don't know if I could actually taste bouchonné wine. Um, but you'll also hear this term bouchon come up in other contexts. Bouchon is uh, the term for traffic. Uh, what else, Ben? It's also... Um... It's the word for the cork. Yeah, it's the word for the yeah. cork. So a, a tier Fantastic. Have you ever sent wine back, Emma, after tasting it in a restaurant? Never. No, I don't think I'd have the nerve. I'll just drink it. Yeah, I would be too afraid. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Great, guys. Thanks for that useful vocab for all our listeners. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.